Today's reading is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 33. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. For understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They will be a garland to grace your head, and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie and wait for someone's blood, let's waylay some harmless soul, let's swallow them alive like the grave, and whole like those who go down to the pit, we will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us, and we will share a common purse. My son, do not go along with them, Do not set foot on their paths, for their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net in full view of all the birds. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. Such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called... And no one gave heed when I stretched out my hands. Since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, wisdom is something that we all covet in this world. There's no one here who would uh, stand up and declare that they desire to be unwise. But help us understand this truth uh, rightly, we pray. Biblically, we pray. Would we understand your wisdom? And more than that, we pray that you would shape us so that we are people who are wise. Please do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
I think we do all want wisdom, um, knowing the right thing to do. But um, probably wisdom, of course, it takes a little bit of time to acquire is one of the downsides of it. But uh, the thing when it comes to wisdom, it's not really enough just knowing the rules. That's very much part of this book of Proverbs. We're told, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, these are the Proverbs of Solomon. They're not all written by him. There are various different authors, but they're probably all collected during his reign. And Solomon is a striking example of wisdom, of course, in uh, 1 Kings, uh, chapters 1 to 11. And particularly when the Lord comes to him and says, Solomon, what would you like? Ask for whatever you want in chapter 3. And Solomon says, what I'd really like, Lord, is wisdom. I'd like a discerning heart to choose right from wrong. And at that point, the Lord doesn't turn around to Solomon and say, well, look, you know, you've, got, you've got quite a lot of Old Testament here. Look, you've got the books of the law. I've given you plenty of good laws. What else do you need? God is quite happy to give him wisdom as well. Because in many situations, having the law is not enough. Should you murder or not murder? Well, the law is quite helpful and clear on that point. Uh, Should you lie or not lie? The law is very helpful and not clear. Should you buy this car or that car? That's a little more complicated, isn't it? Should I trust this salesman or or that one? Or should I trust him or not? Well, it's a little more complicated. Is the most important thing to reduce benefit spending or raise taxes? Well, it's not obvious. You might have different opinions, but you can't know what the outcome will be for an economy. You need wisdom in all these scenarios. Everyone wants wisdom. I don't know if you saw, uh, there was a book that came out, a sort of beautiful coffee table book uh, last year by a chap called Andrew Zuckerman. I don't know if we got the cover. Uh, It's just called Wisdom. And uh, uh, what, he dis- what it was, was the concept of, uh, let me quote from him, the man who put it together, the greatest gift that one generation can give to another is wisdom. It used to be that tribes would look to the elders of the village to give them wisdom. But now we live in a global village. So we should ask the global elders. So he went and interviewed and took very nice photographs of uh, 51, 51 men and women across the cultures the only qualifier was you had to be over 65. So there's Judy Dench on the front, although if you bought the book in the States, you'd get Clint Eastwood on the front. <laughs> Make it that what you will. Um, but the sort of people he asked, Henry Kissinger, Nelson Mandela, Clint Eastwood, Buzz Aldrin, Yoko Ono, um, some were very moving. So reading Mandela on fear is very moving. I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, the triumph over fear. I felt fear constantly, more times than I can remember. I learned to hide my fear behind a mask. I mean, given his life, that's quite moving and impressive. Others less so. So Judy Dent, she makes the front cover, but her comment on wisdom, the older I get, the sillier I get. So I don't know what wisdom is. Well, thanks for that. Um, that's very helpful, isn't it? Billy Connolly, what is wisdom? Wisdom is a question. No, that's not clever. You know, that's just not, is it? You might think it is. It's not, it's not even funny, Billy. Um, <laughs> how do you gain wisdom? Here in this book of Proverbs is God's collection of wisdom. I mean, it's not the only wisdom book in the Bible, of course. Uh, uh, there'll be uh, others in there as well. But most of the people, I guess, are familiar with the book of Proverbs, particularly it's sort of pithy one-liners. The, uh, the sort of sentences, you know, better 
better a happy house with dry bread than a house of feasting with acrimony, that sort of thing. That sort of one-liner, that's what people are familiar with. And of course, much of the book is that. But the first nine chapters are a bit different. Chapters 10 to 22 in particular are those pithy one-liners. But chapters 1 to 9, which we'll spend a few weeks on before we get to the, uh, to the bulk of the book, they're 12 poems, essentially. 12 poems in praise of wisdom that both frame, I guess, the more famous one-liners, but also give the motivation for living that way. That's what they're aiming to do. So really, the whole of chapters 1 to 9 are a purpose statement and an encouragement to live wisely before we get onto the content of what that wisdom looks like. In particular, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, this little prologue on purpose. Here we have then the purpose of his book. Let me just say a few comments, in fact, probably half our time, on verses 1 to 7 before we then look at two fundamental truths here. A few things on purpose then the purpose of wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, collected under his reign. Well, then first of all, we're told, here's the purpose. It's about character. So verses 2 and 3, mainly about character. For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life. That's the purpose of the book of Proverbs. I don't know if you had a school motto when you were at school. My school motto was, whatever you do with your hand, mighty one, do it with all your might. It's terrible, isn't it? Sounds really good in Latin, though. Um, and no doubt, you're, if you work in a professional firm of some kind, you'll have spent lots of money on producing a motto. Busy, active, and sort of words like that. That's the sort of things that people love to go for in their firms now. But here's the purpose of this book. For attaining wisdom and discipline understanding. Great emphasis, I mean lots of overlapping terms here, but great emphasis on character. It's certainly more than mere facts, isn't it? So even in verses 2 and 3, discipline stands out a couple of times. Discipline isn't just knowing things. So straight away you come to this book of Proverbs and uh, Solomon would tell you, look, you could memorize it off by heart. That doesn't do you that much good because you need to internalize it. Wisdom is truth which has been taken into the heart. We'll see it as we get there, but uh, chapter 3, verse 3 is a lovely little sentence on that. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your heart, around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That's what you're meant to do with these proverbs. Write them upon your heart. Internalize this truth so it changes you. I mean, there's clearly an ethical dimension here, isn't there? Verse 3 finishes, if you have wisdom, you'll do what is right and just and fair. So wisdom is not mere knowledge. It is your character. Wisdom changes your character. So the difference is this. Imagine you could take a, if you were wealthy, you bought a massive lump of marble and you shoved it in your garden, haha, in the corner of your flat, and um, you, you hung a sign upon it. This is beautiful. Well, that's okay. That's okay. And you could remind yourself that's a beautiful piece of marble. Or if someone with great skill, what if a sculptor came with a chisel and over months just chipped away various different parts of it? and eventually produced a Rodan-like masterpiece, which is stunning. It doesn't need any words upon it then. It obviously is 
beautiful. Someone with skill has worked away at the character, the form, to make something that is beautiful, not just stuck words on top of it. And wisdom is taking the truth, allowing it to change your character. Just so these proverbs, reading them, that doesn't make you wise. You have to absorb them, meditate upon them, take them into yourself. I guess that's the point of this phrase, understanding. So verse 2, it's for understanding. Verse 6, this is what you need for understanding proverbs and parables. There's a sense in which proverbs are a bit like, or reading the book of proverbs, a bit like doing a complicated crossword or sudoku. If you like those sort of things, you get quite good at them. So my in-laws love Sudoku, and every day, and they do it in just a minute or so. I look at the thing, and I can just about do it. But I think if I did it every day, I'd be brilliant too. But um, I might not be. But uh, if you do this sort of thing, you get into the mindset. There's, there's a method you slightly follow. You get into the rhythm of the thing. They become easier to you. If you only ever do them once a year, they're quite hard. Uh, That's the sense of understanding here. If you keep going, if you try hard to live a life of wisdom, you take these proverbs, you think about them, you meditate about them, it's more natural for you to know the right thing to do. You don't have to think as hard. If once a year you try to do the wise thing, it's quite hard for you to do. If very rarely you invest in wisdom, it's quite hard. There's a process here of understanding. Verses 4 and 5, uh, Solomon's clear, this is for everyone. So it's for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, but also let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance. It's for everyone. Simple here doesn't mean stupid, but young, gullible, naive, someone without much life experience. And there's a sense in which the book is primarily written for them. You see it in verses 8 and 9, this common idea of a father instructing his son. This is a sort of the main idea of the book. Here is wisdom for those who lack it, for the young. But still, he can say, verse 5, the wise can always get wiser. Life is complicated. And wisdom helps you in the complications of life. In one sense, I think that's a, quite a helpful definition. Wisdom, biblically, is competence in the complexities of life. I think that's what it gives you. And so the wise can always glow, grow in that. It's for everyone. And last little thing before we uh, move on is, is uh, verse 7. Where does it begin? Well, Solomon's very clear. The fear of the Lord, that's the beginning. That's the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Look, you can read the whole of this book, but if you miss this foundational point, you'll get little benefit from it. The fear of the Lord, that's the foundation of biblical wisdom. Now, what does that mean? Why is that so? What does that mean? I think the best definition I heard, having read the book of Proverbs and uh, read a few things about it, Charles Bridges, uh, an old Christian commentator, put it this way, the fear of the Lord is affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. That's quite long, isn't it? But affectionate reverence 
and you do God's law. You humbly do God's law. And the reason I think that's so good is it conjures up both, as I understand it, elements of the fear of the Lord. There's an objective part to it. You know what God says. But there's a subjective part as well. You want to follow him. Both of those two come together in the fear of the Lord. I'm following him because it's the right thing to do. I'm following him because, well, because he's good. And it's the right thing. I want to follow him. Affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Humility is a big part of it. A couple of times elsewhere in the book, uh, the fear of the Lord is described as humility, essentially. Chapter 15, verse 33, the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. Humility comes before honor. Chapter 22, verse 4 is the same. Chapter 28, verse 26, he who trusts himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. So there is trusting the Lord, fearing him, or trusting yourself, which is foolishness. That's the objective part. Will you trust his words or not? But then love, following him with affection as well. Let me uh, go out a little, little bit with half the room at least. I don't, know if, uh, I don't know how many would have bothered to go and see a film such as The Hobbit. It's probably an acquired taste. Um, I enjoyed the director's comments, Peter Jackson. He said, if when you're a boy, The, the Hobbit is not your favorite book, there's something wrong with you. If when you're a man, The Hobbit is your favorite book, there is something really very wrong with you. You need to grow up a little bit. And obviously he's taken his advice very clearly in the way he's spent his life. But here we have uh, one little, the the Hobbit then, 13 dwarves on a quest. Run with me if you hate this sort of thing. But 13 dwarves on a quest to try and get their kingdom and their treasure back. The leader is the man second from the right, Thorin Oakenshield, big bloke. And um, the one next to him there, uh, uh, Balin, the older guy, Balin. Now, there's a nice bit in the film. Well, I don't know how you describe nice in that sort of context. But anyway, there's a part in the film where Thorin is a bit agitated. People are joking about battling with orcs, baddies. And um, Thorin's annoyed and agitated, and he sort of slaps the chap down. And the old guy, Balin, says, look, you need to understand what's going on here. So he explains to Bilbo, the hobbit, why Thorin hates orcs so much. It describes a battle uh, decades earlier when Thorin's grandfather had been killed by the leader of the orcs, this massive white orc. His head is cut off, and the whole army collapsed. They were leaderless. They were hopeless. They were strategyless. So Thorin's grandfather, the king, was killed. His father panicked and didn't know what to do. And Balin tells the story that at that moment... Thorin was the only one who got up bravely, despite being a young man, attacked the leader of the baddies, the leader of the orcs, took his own life in his hands and managed to hack him back. And the battle was turned. The men saw, actually, we can still fight. So the dwarves fought and they went on to victory. And so Balin observes, the moment I saw him take up his sword and attack, I knew there's a king I could follow all of my life. And there's a sense in which that is a right fear of a king. There is one who is both inspiring and does the right thing. So there's a sense in which the fear of the Lord is following him as one who you know just teaches wisdom, who gives the right instruction. His law is true, but he inspires you. You know he's good. 
you look at him and think he is brave and courageous. I want to be like him. I want to follow him. It's the fear of the Lord. Affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Last thing that we'll actually get into the rest of the text. Is this really true of verse 7? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I mean, you and I, of course, can think of people who don't fear the Lord. You may be someone who doesn't fear the Lord. And you may consider yourself very wise. And of course, in many ways, you could be. There are lots of very wise scientists who are clever. Let's put it in different terms. Very clever. There are lots of very clever economists who work out what to do. Some people are very clever with money and make lots of money, etc. Lots of clever people. Is this really, really true? Well, I think the book of Proverbs, and we'll see this, but insists upon this in at least three ways. The first, the Lord changes people in a way that nothing else can. So coming and humbly sitting before him is sitting before one who not only teaches you the truth, but changes you. So he changes you. The second would be, you need to believe in a day of justice to choose wisely. Many of the Proverbs are concerned with the delayed benefits of righteousness. You don't always get the goodies straight away. So chapter 12, 28, in the way of righteousness there is life. Along that path is immortality. You have to believe that there's ultimately a day of justice and trust that day even when this life is confusing. So the Lord will change you. There's a day of justice. And third, you need to believe that the Lord is sovereign in the midst of confusion. Because often this world is just confusing. And so I think in in at least those three ways, the fear of the Lord is the beginning and necessary for knowledge. I guess sometimes it's easy to see the examples. You can have a brilliant man, a very brilliant man, who becomes president of the United States and uh, runs many things very well, pushes through legislation, is a good deal maker with his opponents. In many ways, he's brilliant, fabulous orator, commands the crowds, and yet has a silly sexual affair over a number of months with a junior member of staff, which eventually hamstrings his administration and he gets impeached. You can have a very clever man, but he's not wise. Presumably, I don't know, but presumably not thinking clearly Knowing, you can sit there and think, it's very foolish for me to take Monica Lewinsky into my office now and engage with her sexually. You can know that in your head, but what stops you doing it if you've become a wise person? If you know that the Lord will judge? If you know that he's sovereign? If you know that you need his help to change? There's a difference between just being very clever and being wise. Sometimes the difference between knowing what the right thing is, but being courageous enough, strong enough to do it. And the fear of the Lord is necessary to live a life of wisdom, says Solomon. That's, uh, that's two-thirds of our time. But let's just look at these two warnings, then, that come at the beginning of uh, chapter 1. Uh, two warnings that uh, verses 8 and 9 will tell us the father gives to his son. That's the sort of main paradigm of the book. They're simply this. First, then, don't walk with sinners. Don't walk with sinners, which is really verses 10 to 19. By sign of sinners entice, you do not give in to them. 
If they say, come along with us, let's lie and wait for someone's blood. Let's waylay some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We'll get all sorts of valuable things. We'll fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us. We'll share a common purse. My son, don't go along with them. Don't set foot on their paths. Don't do that. Now, I take it here, the father is slightly, he's taking an extreme example. He's slightly caricaturing sinners. Not many people are this crass. Certainly not many people in the UK are this crass to say, let's lie and wait for someone's blood and knock them and kill them as they walk along the road. Not many would do that. But what is, he, what is the enticement then? Well, I think it's twofold. It's quick money, but also group approval. And that's why it's tempting. Two things going on here. The first is obviously quick money, verse 13. We'll get all sorts of valuable things. We'll fill our houses with plunder. Verse 19 is ill-gotten gain. That's obvious. Quick money. But also group approval. Verse 14, throw in your lot with us. We'll share a common purse. The desire to be part of the gang is very strong. Now, most of us, as we get older, can resist that a little bit more. It's most tempting, I guess, when you're a teenager, the desperate desire to fit in. But it's still there in our 20s, 30s, 40s. Oh, let's be honest, it's still there all all of our lives, the desire to fit in. But perhaps most acutely when young, we'll be part of the gang. Oliver Twist, uh, Oliver Twist, of course, uh, arrives and um, he escapes... Uh, the home. He's in London, and the uh, the desire to grow and be a part of Bill Sykes's gang is quite strong, because he can consider himself at home, as Dickens put it. <laughs> he can consider himself part of the family, and you've got to pick a pocket or two, and we'll do it together and work together. And it's all very fun and jolly. You can be part of the gang. You can. Be- we'll be your family when you lack them will be your identity. It's very strong. The lure of belonging to a crowd is a very strong one. And culturally, we love to think we're all individuals. We make our own decisions. But sometimes we're just naive on that because we're all influenced by others. Now, so it's two-pronged, really. I think the enticement, money, belonging. Now, why avoid it? I think that's fairly obvious. The father says, my son, don't go along with them. Don't set foot on their paths. Why? Well, it ends in disaster. Verse 11, the thieves say, let's lie and wait for someone's blood. But verse 18, it'll be their own blood. They'll get their comeuppance. Verse 12, let's kill. Let's kill someone. Let's take their lives. Verse 19, they lose their lives. And so the father says very simply, verse 15, don't walk with them. As I said earlier, it's a highly significant metaphor in the whole of the book. Which path do you walk? Are you walking a path of wisdom or are you walking a path of folly? And that's a good question to ask because many of us, I don't know, I take it not many here are involved in heinous crimes or, or gross sin. I hope not, certainly. But many, when it comes to the small decisions of life, The temptation to do the wrong thing because it's easier, it's very strong. And the Father says here, you know, wisdom is a pathway and there's a destination. 
And if you walk consistently down a pathway of wisdom, great, you end up with life. If you tend, even in the small decisions, oh, look, I've been given 20 pounds change when I only need 10 pounds. If you just keep that for yourself, just the small decisions, just takes you a little bit further down that path of folly. It becomes easier and easier to do the wrong thing. Start small, it'll end up big. Are you walking on paths of wisdom? There was an advert uh, a year or so ago, 18 months ago, I can't remember, for uh, orange phones or the, uh, the contracts. I thought it was a good advert. I don't really like adverts, but I thought this was a clever, a true one at least. Do you remember? It went a bit like this. Voiceover with lots of pictures of people. I am, who am I? I am my mum and my sister. I am my best friend, Mike, I've known since school. I'm all the girls I've ever kissed and the ones I will kiss. I'm the teacher who failed me and the teacher who spurred me on. I am all the bosses I've had. I'm every one of my friends. I am the places I go to with my mates. I'm the drinks I'll share with them. I'm the people who put me down. I am the people who pick me up. I am who I am because of everyone. Therefore, spend lots of money calling people to have an orange. I think it was the just... But of course, in one sense, that's entirely true, isn't it? I am who I am because of who I spend time with. And the father would say, are you spending time with people who help you walk wisely or those who consistently take you down the path of folly? It's not awful. It's not evil. But they just constantly encourage you just to spend a little bit more than you really can afford, to go to places you shouldn't really go to take decisions you shouldn't really take. There's nothing grossly bad about them, just small. Do you spend time with people who encourage you to be wise or encourage you to be foolish? Now, for many of us, we have little choice. We may work for people who actually are immoral in some ways or mildly, mildly, small, small times uh, take bad decisions. We just work, recognizing that is a start, isn't it? And knowing that alongside that, we need to spend time with others who help us walk with wisdom. Don't walk with sinners, says the Father. Last little warning comes from Lady Wisdom, verses uh, 20 and 21. Wisdom gets personified here then as a woman. It's still the Father speaking. Chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, is very clear that the Father's words are Lady Wisdom. So wisdom is a lady in much of chapters 1 to 9, but it's still the Father speaking. It's just a personification. But here we have her in verses 20 to 21. Wisdom calls loud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out in the gateways of the city. She makes her speech. Golly, how undignified, how unladylike to, uh, to do such a thing. Here's a woman standing in the street shouting. It's not calm, cool logic. Actually, she's not trying to persuade people by rational argument here. She's crying out in passion. And verse 21, the, the noisy streets, the gateways of the city, that means she's doing it in the market squares or the gates. That's the centers of commerce, really. It's where the elders sit of the community. I mean, to, to put it in our terms, I guess, wisdom enters the square mile and starts shouting at the bankers. And when she's had enough of that, she wanders down uh, a little further west and she stops outside the Royal Court of Justice and gives a rocket to all the lawyers and the barristers there. And then she wanders on a little bit further and shouts, shouts, shouts outside the Houses of Parliament. And what's she shouting? Verse 22. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? 
How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Well, that'll go down well, won't it? There's a progression in there, verse 22, sort of gullible, naive, to the fool, to the idiot. Seems to me she's criticizing the disposition. The disposition to gain wisdom is not there. The drift is to be open to the allurement of sin. You're drifting in the wrong direction, is really, I think, verse 22, what she's shouting at them. And on it goes. They don't listen to her. And to eventually, verse 26, I'll laugh at your disaster. I'll mock when calamity overtakes you. Not vindictive, but just pleased that justice will be done. And so the chapter ends with the warning, verse 32. The waywardness of the simple will kill them. The complacency of fools will destroy them. Whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. So just as we begin this book, I think Solomon's question is, what will you do in the decisions that you take today? The small ones. Will you begin with the fear of the Lord, submit humbly to him, say, your way is the best way and you are a good king. And then, okay, I've got a decision to make. I think the right thing to do is this one. Maybe it's the... Will you, will you walk in wisdom today? Will you surround yourself with wise people today? Will you be open to wisdom's rebuke? Oh, I tell you, going through the book of Proverbs, not always comfortable, of course. The Bible often isn't, un, isn't comfortable to us. But will you be open to wisdom's rebuke, change? Will you be wise today? An obvious point is uh, chapter one is not very flattering, not flattering portrayal. I don't suppose for one minute that the simple, as Lady Wisdom describes them, I don't think the simple think of themselves that way for one minute. And that's why wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. It begins with a humility that says, I need to learn from my maker. Or to put it in another sense, it begins with the comment that Balin makes. Now there's a king I could follow. And in one sense, you, I don't know about you, I don't know if you've seen the film, probably about three people here have. But um, when I watched the film and I saw that point, I, you can't help, I think, as a Christian, but think, yes, of course that's true. Because I don't have one who picked up a sword and bravely attacked an orc for me. But I do have one who very bravely went to his death, who picked up his cross who speaks enormous wisdom when I read his sermons, who speaks enormous wisdom from his words, and yet heroically is willing to lay down his life for me. And I see that one and think, yeah, there's a king I could follow. There's one I would love to fear. Come before with affectionate reverence and trust him and ask him to shape me to become wise like him. Let's pray together. Father, please convince us, for the first time, convince us further that wisdom begins with knowing you, it being in relationship with you. Would we, therefore, Christian or not, want to listen to your voice, respond with humility, 
and therefore walk in paths that are wise, we pray. We long that this will be another year when we grow more like the Lord Jesus Christ, a shaped, fashioned in our character to be like him. Please work that in us, we pray, in his great name. Amen.